0: Charles Spurgeon once said, Of all I would wish to say, this is the sum, my brethren. Preach Christ always and evermore. I think that quote captures the essence of the primary mission of the church. Why has the Lord left the church in the world? Why did he not simply rescue us as soon as we believed? He could have done that, yes? He could have saved the apostles and snatched them up to heaven, and then for each and every other person who believed, he could have simply drawn them up to heaven so the church would be safe for all eternity. The reality is that in the sovereignty of God, he designs both the end as well as the means of salvation. And in his design, he has purposed to use his people to be the means by which other people come to faith in Christ. We've mentioned the passage in Matthew 28 already where Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I am with you always. From the very beginning, the Lord has designed his plan of salvation to involve the very people that he saved to be the conduit through which other people are saved. Thus, we're called to, again, as Spurgeon said, preach Christ always and evermore. There are times, however, in the course of human history when this command to preach was difficult. And it becomes difficult not because the message is difficult, the message is very simple, but because the people to whom we're called to preach are difficult. We're not commanded to wait for people to get better or to become more desirable before we preach the good news. We're simply commanded to preach. That's good, by the way, because if someone had to wait for us to get better, we probably never would have heard the gospel. Maybe I'm just talking about myself here. We're called to preach, and as we preach, we bear testimony of the glory of God to the world. We bear testimony to his glory by the words that we speak, as much as by the very fact that we're preaching. The book of Jonah reminds us that the Lord commands us to go out of the abundance of compassion that he has for the lost. He sends us as emissaries of his compassion. He sees those walking in darkness, the darkness of their ignorance of him, their ignorance of the danger of their unbelief, and he sends his people to preach. What happens when we do not go? What happens when we do not preach? Clearly, if we do not go, they will not hear. But is that all? If we fail to preach the gospel, if we fail to obey the command, is the only concern that the lost will hear? As we return to the, final, the first chapter of Jonah, we're faced with the reality that our failure to preach, as we've been called, is simply disobedience. It is sin. And that because the Lord loves his people, he is committed to chastening his people for their disobedience in order to bring about his purposes in the world, both for the salvation of those who hear the gospel, as well as for our sanctification. In other words, the book of Jonah is not only about the preaching of the gospel, it's also about the preacher of the gospel. It's not only about compassion sent, it's also about compassion of the servant Turn with me again to chapter 1 of Jonah. Again, this is the first chapter, and it's all about the compassion of the Lord being sent out. And we see how important it is to the Lord that his compassion go forth as we see his response to a servant who has disobeyed his command to go. Let's read chapter 1 again together. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. It's raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I mentioned last week when we did a bit of introduction that verse 17 actually goes with chapter 2, so we're going to stop there. I gave you an outline for chapter 1 the last time we were together, just by way of reminder. We see the commissioning, the conflict, the consequence, the confession, the cry the calm, and the commitment. All of those we'll see in chapter one of Jonah. Let's look to the Lord now in prayer. Father, again, we come before you and ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. We got through those first two points the last time. I'll just give you a refresher. We looked at Jonah's commissioning and the first words of the book. Jonah 1.1. 1, 1. Again, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Again, that's a formula that we would expect to see for any introduction to a prophet. Jonah is referred to one other time in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 14.25. He's also referred to in the New Testament by Jesus himself. Jesus uses the life of Jonah the prophet as an illustration for his own um, death just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish so I'll also be in the belly of the earth so to speak. What we would expect to see as we see this these introductory words the word of the Lord came to Jonah the word of the Lord came to any prophet is we would simply expect to see the prophet to go and obey what was Commanded of him. But we don't see that in the text. Thus we identified again the primary conflict in verses 2 and 3. So we saw the commission in 1. Now we see the conflict in 2 and 3. Again, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. The contrast is emphasized in the passage. Arise, go to Nineveh, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. In fact, Tarshish is mentioned three times for emphasis. Also, for emphasis, the fact that he was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord is mentioned twice in the passage. A prophet is supposed to prophesy. A prophet is supposed to speak on behalf of the Lord, period. Go and speak. It was a hard job, but it was a simple job. But Jonah did not go and speak. He rose and ran away. Well, why did he refuse? We talked about that again last week. Perhaps. He was just afraid to go to Nineveh. Nineveh had a bad reputation. It would have been the capital city of the Assyrians. The nation itself was known for its pursuit of perfecting torture. Another suggestion is that Jonah was simply a patriot. He was a patriot and a good Jewish man. He wanted to maintain the purity of the worship of the Lord and couldn't stand the thought that these pagans would have the opportunity to know the compassion of God. We get a sense of this from Jonah's own words in chapter 4, verse 2. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. They don't deserve to be saved. That's why I didn't go. That's his hard attitude. I asked you at that time, could you relate to that sentiment? When you take a look around at the wickedness of the nations around you, you see the choices that they make, the wars, the crimes against humanity, particular people groups being wiped out, one larger nation invading a smaller nation. Maybe you see other ungodly actions in our society racism, murder, many of the other immoral issues that we face in our day. We in the church tend to react to those things just like the rest of the world at times with disgust frustration, astonishment, yes, even hatred, express those feelings on Facebook, Twitter. Again, we react to those things around the water cooler at work, among peers at school, while we carry our godliness merit badges on our chest and proclaim our disdain for sin. In all of that, we are essentially, as Jonah, running in the opposite direction, fleeing from the presence of God, We ought to be reflecting the character of God not reviling it by our actions and our words. I mentioned Titus 3 where Titus mentions that we are to be subject to rulers, authorities, to be obedient ready for every good deed, to malign no one. I think that's perhaps one of the most convicting parts of that passage. We're called to keep our mouths in check as we think about others and we see their ungodliness because we were also once foolish. But it was the kindness of God our Savior and his love for us That he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Of course, again, we're called to preach the gospel to all nations. That ought to be our primary focus. When we see the peoples of the world, no matter what they're doing, no matter what their disposition, any people of the world, when we see them in their unbelief, our charge, what we are called to do, just as Jonah was called as a prophet to simply speak forth the word of God. What we're charged to do is not give our opinion on the way of the world, but is to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. To do anything less is to run away from our responsibility from the Lord, is to flee from his presence, is to turn away from his glory and to deny his compassion. Jonah, when called to go to Nineveh, the undesirables of his day fled from the presence of the Lord. He refused because he didn't think they deserved the grace of God. He refused and he ran. In other words, Jonah's objection wasn't simply ideological. His refusal was not a conversation with the Lord, or simply grumbling in response to something that he was called but was not sure he could fulfill. This was not like Moses. Who pushed back, questioning the Lord, making excuses really as to why he couldn't go to Egypt. It wasn't quite like that. It wasn't like Mary, who, when she was told she would bear the Messiah, said, How can this be because I've not known a man? Both of them ultimately obeyed. Jonah refused. And again, as we can see from chapter 4, verse 2, he thought through what could possibly happen if he obeyed and he just decided to instead rebel and run in the opposite direction. I've read through some commentaries, and some commentaries will position Jonah as a reluctant prophet. He wasn't just a reluctant prophet. He was rebellious. He was a rebellious prophet. Jonah was in sin. And sin has consequences. That's our next point, verses 4 through 6 So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Again, Jonah's decision to rebel against the will of God is the epitome of sin. Sin, as R.C. Sproul has put it, is cosmic treason. It is open rebellion to the will of God. Sin is a rejection of the sovereignty of God over us. It is akin to telling God, no, you cannot have your way in my life. You cannot have your rule in my life. I determine my own standard. I determine my own boundaries. Biblically, that is what it means when it refers to sin. There are typically two words used in reference to sin. You can look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. The first, which is sometimes translated simply as sin, means to miss the mark. There's a bullseye set up, but you can't hit it. Your aim is so bad that, as they say, you couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. Each and every time one of us in our sin misses the mark in that respect, the mark is the will of God, his righteous standard. Most of us know there's a mark and that we cannot hit it, so we just give up. Why try to hit the mark? Just make your own, right? If you set your own standard and if you reach that, then you can congratulate yourself and keep on moving. Well, the other word translated sin is translated for sin is the word trespass. And that's just what it sounds like. It's not missing the mark per se, it's overstepping a boundary. There are no trespassing signs on certain properties. We all know what that means, right? There's a certain line that you need to make sure you abide by. Don't step over that line. Most of us, when we see that no trespassing sign, immediately want to do what? (laughs) We want to go in. We want to go past it, right? The problem with both of these is that the standard, the mark that we're supposed to hit, the boundary that we should not cross is not set by humanity. It's not set by society. It's set by our creator, God. Because he's the one who made us. He is the God of heaven. Sin is rebelling against him. Rebelling against the God of heaven, the one who determines his standard, the one who sets the boundaries. Again, sin has consequences, and we see those consequences in the life of Jonah. First of all, when we commit sin, when we decide to rebel against the Lord, it leads us to make foolish decisions. Think about that. God appeared to Jonah, presumably in his homeland, homeland of Israel. Jonah the prophet knew that God is the God of heaven. He's a prophet of this God, right? He's the God who made the sea and the dry land. Why then would you attempt to run from him? I mean, where could you go from the God who made the sea and the dry land? This is utter foolishness. David in Psalm 139 indicated this truth. To him it was a comfort. To all of us it is both a reminder and a warning. Psalm 139 verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? He's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. We cannot hide from him. But Jonah, in his attempt to rebel against God, in his submission to his sinful inclination to rebel against the will of God, simply made a foolish decision. Second, when we decide to rebel against the Lord, we always find that sin is costly. Jonah was attempting to flee from the presence of the Lord, so he found a ship that he thought would take him, again, as the text says, away from the presence of the Lord and away from Nineveh. He paid a fare to go across the the Mediterranean to what would have possibly been considered the end of the known world. That would have required a hefty sum. Think about that. He's going as far as he possibly could go. Moreover, later we find out that no one knew who he was on board ship. Typically, when you're traveling, you have to be registered in some way to indicate your presence. But no one, not even the ship's captain, knew Jonah's name or occupation. So he paid a fare, presumably not only to get to Tarshish, some 2,000 miles away, but also for anonymity. This must have been very costly for him. Perhaps it's not a fair to go somewhere geographically, geographically for you. Perhaps your sin costs you financially for some other reason, some other purchase that you have to make in order to satisfy your habit, often anonymous to keep others from knowing about it. That cost takes away from resources you could be using for your family or to serve the Lord. Perhaps it's not financial, but it costs you time. Time that you could have been seeking and serving the Lord. Time that you could have been using as a blessing for someone else. Perhaps it's relationships. You lose certain relationships because you cannot let go of your sin. It drives a wedge between you and others. Ultimately, sin costs us in our relationship with the Lord. Isaiah 59.2 tells us that sin makes a separation between us and God. Sin leads to foolish decisions. It's costly. It's costly. It's also dangerous. Sin in the life of an unbeliever puts them in danger. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 After death comes the final judgment. Hebrews 9.27 Those who abide under the judgment of God after their physical death will remain under the judgment of God for all eternity. There's no second chance after death. There's not going to be a St. Peter standing at the pearly gates for you to walk up to and plead your case. That's not the way it works. If you die in your unbelief, you will remain in your unbelief for all eternity, suffering the wrath of God. That's why God sends forth his people today. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why we go and we preach. But also for the believer, sin has consequences. It does put us in danger. These are not the consequences of condemnation like the unbeliever. Romans 8.1 There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ but it's the promise of chastisement. The Lord chastises believers out of love. Proverbs 3.11 and 12 My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Likewise in Hebrews 12 which Deacon Charles read earlier for us, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, quoting that Proverbs passage? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and ch- chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides, as we have had earthly fathers who discipline us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. The Lord is committed to seeing the fruit of righteousness in our lives. The fruit of righteousness is just what we discussed last week. It's godliness. It's his character at work in our lives, shining forth through us. The Lord chastens us as children in love so that we may share in his character. He's committed to this. That is why he doesn't leave us alone in our sin. If he didn't chasten us as his children, he wouldn't be a loving heavenly father. Of course, another implication of this from the passage is that if we don't receive the discipline of the Lord, no matter how much we profess faith in him, if we are living in sin and not being disciplined by him, then we're probably not his. This is why also we must, by the way, discipline our children. We must discipline them if we love them. Children do not inherently have self-control. They do not inherently have a concept of the mark they should be hitting. They do not have a concept of boundaries. We have to instruct them in this. As they're very young, we instruct them with the rod because that controlled but tangible consequence is a clear indicator to them that what they're doing is wrong when they cannot yet understand reason. As they get older, we give them the reason why. But we need to indicate to them that they're putting themselves in danger by missing the mark, by trespassing. This is a very basic truth that we must learn at an early age. Children who do not learn this at an early age become youth and eventually adults who have no concept of authority, no concept of boundaries, no concept of objective truth to which all of God's creation, humanity in particular, are held by. He is the God of heaven. He has standards that we must adhere to. These are non-negotiable truths that children must learn at an early age, or else it puts them in danger. Again, sin puts us in danger. For the unbeliever, it leads to death and final judgment. For the believer, it leads to the chastening of the Lord. We see that in the life of Jonah as the Lord pursued him even across the sea. Again, verse four, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. The Lord was not willing to leave Jonah in his sin in the exercise of his sovereign authority over the sea. The Lord hurled a great wind and that great wind caused a mighty tempest. And that mighty tempest was severe to the degree that it threatened to destroy the ship. Hear the repetition of these similar adjectives. It was a great wind a mighty tempest. This is the Lord's doing. It wasn't just some ordinary storm. We have to understand that. People tend to scoff at what is laid out and depicted in the book of Jonah as perhaps myth or something that couldn't possibly happen. But the text is very clear that these are not normal events. These are things that are happening because God is sovereign. And because God in his sovereign will chooses to make these things happen. And he chooses to discipline his rebellious prophet in this way. The Lord often uses extraordinary means to get our attention. Again, sin puts us in danger. And as I've told my children often, the older we get, the greater the consequences. And the more likely that those consequences of our sin will impact others. Verse 5 The mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to lighten it for them. The consequences of Jonah's sin brought judgment on him as well as those around him. The sailors of the ship became greatly afraid. Now, I would imagine that it would take a lot for a sailor to lose it on a ship in the midst of a storm. I mean, they train for this. They're sailors. This is what they do. They sail back and forth all the time, they know these waters. In this case, though, again, in the sovereignty of God, this was no normal storm. So frightened were they that they called out to their gods. The text doesn't mention who the gods were. It really doesn't matter. We know that the Bible acknowledges no other god. Nevertheless, they cried out, but the storm went on. They tried to throw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship to prevent it from sinking, but the storm went on, and the danger continued to be real and present. Again, the older we get, the more responsibilities in life we have. We grow up, we move out from our homes, create circles of influence, have friends, perhaps family of our own, do things like drive, vote, own a home, be a neighbor. The older we get, the more likely it is that our sin, our rebellion against God will impact others. When we're very young and we sin, our sin troubles our parents. Right? may trouble our siblings, our cousins, those closest to us, but mostly impacts those immediately around us. If you have a child who doesn't respect boundaries or authority, that can cause turmoil in the home. A child who doesn't respect boundaries, doesn't color within the lines, isn't considerate of others, may disappoint their parents when the picture they drew looks a little strange, or when they interrupt the conversation they're having with someone else. But when they get older, an adult who doesn't respect boundaries or authority causes turmoil in the society. Others are impacted by it. An adult who doesn't respect boundaries and stay within the lines and isn't considerate of others when they drive will drive aggressively, will likely swerve from one lane to the next, cut others off, typically end up in a ditch somewhere after slamming into other vehicles because they weren't being considerate of others and staying within the lines. Jonah's sin of rebellion put his life and the life of the sailors in jeopardy. Again, sin leads us to make foolish decisions. It's costly, it's dangerous, it spreads out to others, and it is deceitful. Back to our text Jonah, for his part, again in verse 5, had gone down into the inner part of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. This should seem strange to us. This is one of those points in the story where you have to slow down and consider the irony of it. Remember, the ship is in the midst of a great storm. So much so that the sailors, these skilled sailors, have been panicking, running about, praying to their God, throwing things overboard. Their cargo is what they get paid for. So if they're throwing their cargo overboard, they are losing their livelihood. But they needed to do this because their lives were in danger. And yet Jonah is lying down asleep in the midst of this. We can get comfortable in our sin. We can be at peace in our sin. People often talk about being at peace with a decision that they've made as if the mere fact that they're at peace is indicative of it being the right thing. Clearly, that's not true. Sin is deceitful. The writer of the book of Hebrews comments on this and exhorts us to be involved in each other's lives to encourage one another against sin and rebellion. Hebrews chapter 3, take care, brothers, Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. That's Hebrews 3, 12 through 19. The point that the writer of Hebrews makes is striking. If those who were led by Moses out of Egypt, those who saw the miraculous work of God, to humble the greatest power on earth at that time, Egypt, if they saw God do all of these miraculous works and yet still fell away, still grumbled, still complained, still fell by the deceitfulness of sin and were laid to waste in the wilderness because of it, how much more should we be careful? We often think, if I, just, if I heard God's voice audibly, then I'd know and I'd be more confident Or if I saw God's miraculous work in the world today, present today, if I saw him do this, then I would be more confident in my faith. They saw it and still fell away. This underscores the importance of us being engaged and involved in each other's lives and encouraging one another. We have to be careful because of the deceitfulness of sin. Again, Jonah had fallen asleep, fast asleep in the belly of a ship that was breaking up around him. And he needed for someone to wake him out of his slumber. He needed for someone to remind him of the truth that they were in very real danger. He could not do it himself because he had fallen to the deceitfulness of sin. Well, what was the truth on the boat? Again, the truth was they were about to die. Verse 6, the captain said to, came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. He says, get up and pray. That's what everyone else is doing. Maybe your God will hear and help us. Again, they were desperate at this point. And again, the irony of the story is that Jonah didn't really need to pray. He probably already knew what was going on. The moment he woke up and he realized what was happening around him, he probably already knew. But again, sin has consequences. It puts us in danger. This is a truth that we must learn. This is a truth that we must learn early in our lives. And we must learn in no uncertain terms. In the book of Galatians, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he also will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap Corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Sin puts us in danger. To the contrary, I like another quote that I heard from Spurgeon when he said that your only safety lies in believing in the Lord Jesus with all your heart and obeying his commandments. So far we've seen the commission, the conflict, the consequence. Next we move to the confession, verses 7 through 9. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Again, at this point, the sailors have come to their wits' end. There's nothing left they can do. They were probably a superstitious lot, and they've surmised that there's likely someone on board who is the cause. So they said, hey, let's cast lots and figure out who is the issue here. The casting of lots was a matter of chance, humanly speaking. It was akin to our roll of the dice. For the religious sort, the lots were cast, and whoever the lot fell to, presumably by the will of the gods, would have been the corporate. Since, of course, there are no other gods, it was a true and living God, the God of heaven, the Lord, who used their superstitious lot casting for his purposes. The lot was cast and it fell to Jonah. And so they asked him, who in the world are you? What is going on here? Remember, again, Jonah has gotten onto this ship completely anonymously. No one knew who he was. No one knew why he was there. He just paid his money and went down into the ship and fell asleep. But now all of that is coming out into the light. And of course, what is done in the dark will always come to the light. So Jonah confesses. He spills the beans. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Believers are said to be confessional. As New Testament saints, we are confessional, meaning that we confess the truth of certain realities in the normal course of our being. To a believer, to be, we believe in something. It is to believe in Jesus Christ, to believe in him for salvation, to believe in him as the one who died for our sins, who rose again from the third day. We just read the Nicene Creed earlier for an example of a confession to which the church has agreed for thousands of years. The Old Testament saints were also confessional, and I think what Jonah says here is an example of a confession. It's kind of a summary statement of what he believed about who the Lord is. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That he is a Hebrew is clear enough. Israel had a kingdom during the time, so people in the area would have known who the Hebrews were. We don't know how much they would have known or how well they would have known, but they would have understood who he was in that sense. Jonah gives the proper name for God. He refers to him as the Lord. The Lord is a covenant name for God, as God originally gave it to Moses. And maybe they didn't fully understand what that meant, so Jonah gave a further clarifying statement. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, he is the creator God. He's not just the God of Israel, he is the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He made the sea and the dry land. In Hebrew, the technique of using two parts to describe a whole is called a merism, He is the God of heaven. He is also the God of the sea and the dry land. He is the God of everything above and also the God of everything below. He is the God of all. The God over all. The gods of the people commonly would have been separate, distinct. The God of the sun, the God of the moon, perhaps the God of the sea, the water, perhaps the God of this particular body of water. There were not many who would have held to the monotheistic view of the Hebrews. But Jonah is making very clear this is who God is. He is the Lord the God of heaven. And they would have understood this is why their gods and prayers to their gods was ineffective. This is why their efforts to save the ship until this point have been ineffective. They're up against the Lord, the God of heaven. They know that's a battle they're not going to win. As we move on, we see their concern expressed in 10 through 13. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is it that you have done? For they knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. They said to him, "What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous." He said to them, "Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this tempest has come upon you." Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Jonah told them they were, he was running from the Lord. The text says they were exceedingly afraid as a result of this. Then they ask him, what is it that you have done? They understand that he's fleeing from the Lord, and they understand that this is now putting them in danger. What is it that you have done? How could you put us all in danger in that way? How could you try to flee from the God of heaven? Now what are we going to do, Jonah? What do we got to do to make the sea quiet down for us? And we see repeated multiple times that even though they're asking all of these questions, they're trying to find resolution, the sea continues to grow more and more tempestuous. Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. It was my fault. That's what you need to do. I would have been like, all right, let's do it. Let's, let's drop this dude off right now and get him off the ship. But another stroke of irony in the story is that even though these unbelieving pagan sailors... Didn't believe the Lord. Didn't know the Lord. They still tried to save Jonah's life. They tried to spare his life. They rode harder. But they couldn't row hard enough to reverse what the Lord was doing. They couldn't get a break. Finally they gave in and so we see their cry in verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. A few things to note about this cry they called him the Lord. If they didn't know him before by name, they knew him now. The works that he had done, the storm that he had controlled, aim that chastening his servant had made evident to them that the God of heaven, the Lord, was not one to be trifled with. And so they addressed him directly. When we proclaim the truths of the gospel to the lost, we must make clear who we're talking about. Not God in some general sense, all gods are not the same. Don't believe that lie. There is only one God, the true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one God, the Lord. But they got it. Second, they asked him for pardon. Jonah told them that in order for the storm to be calm, in order for them to be safe, they needed to throw him overboard. But they knew that they would, this would lead to Jonah's life, death, and so they refused. Now at their wit's end, they knew that they had no other option aside from the death of everyone overboard. One life to save the life of all. So they asked the Lord for pardon. Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And of course, we know that if we ever sin, we sin against the Lord, the God of heaven. And so they're acknowledging this truth. And as we proclaim the gospel to others, we have to make this truth clear. That when we sin, we have sinned against the God of heaven. And it is his pardon that we need. Third, they acknowledge his sovereignty. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Again, this is a recognition that it is the Lord who sent the storm. The Lord who made the storm grow worse and worse to the point that they all despaired for their lives. They recognized that they were powerless against the Lord. Their gods were powerless against the Lord. All they could do at Jonah's word was cast Jonah overboard. Now, those words are really the epitome of belief. O Lord, you have done as it pleased you. In the face of any life-threatening events, O Lord, you have done as it pleased you. When we're not able to do anything to change the course of any events around us, Lord, you have done as it pleased you. When we are chastened for our disobedience, Lord, you have done as it pleased you. For our God is in the heavens, and he he does all that pleases him. That's Psalm 115, verse 3. Again, this is another bit of irony. Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, sinned by rejecting the will of God for him to go and preach to Nineveh. These unbelieving Gentile sailors at the end of their part of the story acknowledge in no uncertain terms that the Lord does what pleases him. They humbly submitted to his sovereign will for their lives at that time. If Jonah had done that in the beginning, none of this would be happening right now. When we preach the gospel to the lost we must make clear that the one about whom we are speaking is the sovereign of the universe he does what he pleases his will ought to be done the gospel is not a suggestion that we can simply ignore we can't simply receive Christ a day if we want to because that is disobedience we are commanded to believe in the Lord Jesus The whole earth is commanded to believe in the Lord Jesus and bow the knee to him. That's not an option. That's how we must proclaim the truths of the gospel. You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Moving on and wrapping up, verse 15, we see the calm after the storm. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The ship went from utter chaos near breaking up completely, sailors throwing cargo overboard, everyone despairing for their lives to utter calmness. And that from simply throwing Jonah into the sea. This man who said that he was a servant of the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land and was running from him. I mean, what would you do if that were you, if you were one of the sailors? What could you do at that point? I think they did all that they could do. Again, we've seen the commission, the conflict, the consequence, the confession, the concern, the cry, the calm. Now the commitment. This is their response. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now we don't know if these men truly became believers after that, but something changed in their lives at that point. The text said earlier, after Jonah made his confession, they were exceedingly afraid. Now it says that they feared the Lord exceedingly. Throughout the course of this narrative, the fear of the sailors has gone from fearing the storm to fearing for their lives after understanding that Jonah was fleeing the God of heaven, now fearing the Lord. And they made that amazing confession themselves, Lord, you have done as it pleased you. And it says that they sacrificed and made vows to him. Scripture tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Certainly they were at least on their way to wisdom, if not truly believing. Only time would tell. We don't have the luxury of learning about their lives. I don't think that's really the point, but it is another stroke of irony in the book of Jonah that this prophet who was commanded to preach to the wicked Ninevites who refused and in disobedience to the Lord in open rebellion ran away and as a result of his rebellion, refusing to go to preach the gospel to this unbelieving Gentile nation ended up preaching the gospel anyway to these unbelieving Gentile sailors. Ended up coming to know the good news of the Lord anyway. When maybe never in a million years would they have visited Israel. Maybe never in a million years would they have encountered a Hebrew. But they did this day. The Lord was able to use Jonah's wickedness, Jonah's sin, for his good. Well, again, God is committed to his plan of redemption. He's so committed that he uses his people to take the message of his glory, his redemption, his salvation to the nations. And in his wisdom, he may even use his chastisement of his people in their disobedience in some way to show his glory to the lost. This is Jonah being cast into the open sea because of his disobedience and the sailors finally coming to know the Lord. This is Israel as a nation being sold into slavery to those surrounding them repeatedly throughout their history. For their disobedience. And the nations around them coming to know the Lord. This is the church in our time being ravaged by false teachers. The prosperity gospel, all sorts of other maladies as a result of our collective drift away from the truth. And yet the truth still persevering through it all. And the gospel still going forth through it all. This may be in your life some trouble, some trials, some tribulation, whether financial, physical, or spiritual that the Lord allows to chasten you for your disobedience to his will. And yet, through that chastening, he is able to shine forth his character, his glory, his good news to others. But whatever the source of your sin, whatever benefit you may think you derive, it will never be greater than the benefit of living in obedience. It will never bring bring greater blessing than walking in the truth. We have been called to glory in him, in our great God. We have been called to be his heralds, to say to the world, Behold our God. And I pray that the Lord would grant that we walk obediently in his compassion and proclaim his compassion and his glory to others for the good of those who hear and for his glory ultimately. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you again for your word, your truth, which sanctifies us. Thank you for teaching us through the life of Jonah that you are committed to your word going forth. You are committed to your people, even to the degree that you are willing to chasten them in their disobedience, in their sin. Father, we pray that it wouldn't take your chastening hand for us to take the message of the gospel, the good news of Christ to the nation's. We pray that it wouldn't take your chastening hands for you to use us to proclaim your goodness, your glory to those around us, but that we would do it freely. We would do it obediently. We would collectively as your people proclaim, behold our God. We pray that you would make this true of us, those of us who hear your voice this day. In Christ's blessed name, amen.